This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. To uh, having that important connection with our loved ones. Relaxing the rules at long-term care homes and what a new study reveals about seniors' immunity. A green light for indoor religious gatherings. We are really thankful the temporary trial period, and COVID sins that still can't be committed. And friends remember the victim of a disturbing crime. I can't get over it. Last night I wasn't able to sleep. Still stunned by her murder and charges against a 15-year-old she knew. You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. Families across B.C. are gearing up tonight for what could likely be some pretty joyous reunions. The provincial government is finally relaxing restrictions on visitations in long-term care homes. Richard Zussman joins us live from Victoria with the details of what people can look forward to. Richard. It was more than a year ago, Sophie, that rules came in place that in essence locked down long-term care, restricting visitation to help curb the spread of COVID-19. Well, those rules, they're about to be relaxed. Grandma's in there already with a fancy Christmas sweater on. There have been visits from afar, through windows, and sometimes no visits at all. Hi, Grandma. And on Thursday, the news many living in long-term care and assisted living have been waiting for. It, it is time. It is time for us to safely move to uh, having that important connection with our loved ones in, in long-term care. Starting April 1st, substantial changes coming to visitations in care homes. Residents can visit loved ones in their rooms with no staff supervision. Hugging and hand-holding is allowed with safety measures in place. A minimum of 60 minutes set aside for visits and up to two visitors plus a child are allowed. It's just a fantastic day to be able to reunite people, to give uh, ability to socialize. Until April 1st, residents will be allowed still just an essential visitor. Once the changes come in, there will be regular screening checks and a requirement visitors stay home if they're feeling sick and a mask requirement. More than 90% of residents in long-term care are now vaccinated and the province won't require visitors to have had the shot. But the vaccine itself protects people very well, even seniors and elders in long-term care. The change is not just for outside visits. Residents can now visit with fellow residents without distancing. They can eat together again. And they can go to the mall or park without isolating upon return. Just imagine that for a year, you didn't get outside your home at all. Not for a drive, not for a walk, uh, not to go to the store, uh, regardless of whether you were wearing a mask or not. Uh, that's been the experience for people in long-term care. But for Natalia Yoon, today's a tough day. I would have given anything to have been able to hug my mom. Global News first introduced you to Yoon in December, at the time telling the story about fighting to visit her mom, who died in long-term care. You know, it's great. You're going to open it up. But why did it take so long? Why do we have to be on our knees for over a year? It has been um, 
not just a long, cold, lonely winter, but it was a long, cold, it was a long fall and a lonely fall and a lonely summer. These measures, I think, uh, everyone understands were necessary. All right, Richard, great news for a lot of families, but how can they be assured that individual care homes will follow the provincial guidance? Yeah, that is the number one issue Dr. Bonnie Henry has heard about from families with loved ones in care. What she said today is this is provincial guidance. And by making it publicly available, the care homes and the public know that these rules starting April 1st, Sophie, must be followed. All right. Thanks for that. Richard Zussman in Victoria. Some very preliminary results from a B.C. study are raising some questions about the timing of the second Pfizer vaccine shot specifically for seniors. As Linda Aylesworth reports, the research suggests delaying the second shot of the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine might not be the best plan for long-term care residents. When Dr. Mark Romney isn't attending patients, he's in the lab at St. Paul's Hospital, searching for solutions to potentially deadly problems like the virus that causes COVID-19. We wanted to understand why elderly individuals in long-term care were so susceptible to this virus. One focus of the study, which began last winter, how much protection do long-term care residents get from the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine? The good news was they, they had a response to the vaccine, uh, but the, the quantity of antibodies that they produced was significantly lower than in healthy controls. And the antibodies that were produced after the first vaccination were less able to block the virus from entering healthy cells. So how protected are the elderly after just one dose? Well, that is the million-dollar question. Uh, is it good enough? Does it protect them from hospitalization? Does it protect them from, from death? And that we don't know just yet. What we do know is that healthy younger people can wait up to 112 days between doses and that many provinces have extended dosing intervals as a result. But the findings raise questions about the elderly. You know, in general, extending an interval is a good thing. But in this particular situation, in older people, you know, I don't know if we have that luxury. The provincial health officer says she's aware of the recent findings. And if we start to see a decrease in protection, um, in real-world protection, in vaccine effectiveness in elderly people, then we will speed up um, second doses for that group of people. Dr. Romney's study isn't a big one. Only 12 residents were enrolled. And there's much data yet to be gathered. Even so... We just need to be careful. We need to have as much information as possible in making these decisions because uh, lives are at stake. Linda Aylesworth, Global News. News today that some restrictions are being relaxed comes as B.C. hits its highest daily COVID-19 case number since early December. We have 800 new cases today, bringing our total to 94,769, with 5,856 of those being active. 306 people are in hospital, 79 in the ICU. And sadly, there have been five more deaths. Yesterday, the province administered more than 27,000 doses of, ca of vaccine. Keith Baldry joins us now with more, Keith. The obvious question here is what is causing that continued mm. rise in new cases? 
Yeah, more than 700 yesterday, 800 today. Our numbers are going the wrong way, folks. Uh, on the early news with you, Sophie, I looked at uh, the age group that's causing this, the 20 to 39-year-olds, really where the most of the cases are. Now let's take a look at where the virus is spreading the most in terms of what cities have the most cases in the last month. Uh, again, the uh, the numbers, again, speak for themselves. Surrey, obviously, has been the epicenter for some time. Uh, Vancouver as well, showing numbers. And you see other cities in the Fraser Valley, but also Whistler, uh, Lang. Uh, again, Delta, it's a, n a number of cities that have been high case counts for some time, but they continue to put up high numbers here, and that's of concern. Surrey in particular, and this is why we're seeing the education frontline workers being vaccinated first in Surrey. Look for all these other cities here that I'm showing to also get the AstraZeneca vaccine into the arms of frontline workers earlier than other municipalities across the province, because this is where the virus is spreading the most, is in these towns and municipalities uh, by a much higher number than most places in British Columbia. And a lot of questions about variants of concern, Keith, and how mm -hmm. they factor into all of this. What impact are they having on these numbers? We're not as bad off as uh, some other provinces, notably Alberta and Ontario, in terms of what we're seeing daily. 191 new cases today, but I think it's always instructive to look at more of a week total when it comes to uh, measuring various indicators here. So take a look at the week uh, that basically it was. We've had uh, more than 640 cases uh, through the, the entire week. And the, not sure that's the, this is actually a previous graphic, so I'm not going to dispense with that. But anyways, we've had 640 cases in the, in the last week. Most of those are the UK variant, uh, but the one that's keeping people a little nervous is the Brazilian variant, because that number continues to track upwards. That's the one that there's less evidence that the vaccines are that effective against that one. Our numbers now are starting to be concerning. 29 active cases of the Brazilian variant, uh, more than 200 active cases for the variants overall. So that number continues to creep upwards, and that's got public health officials a little nervous. Uh, and the general public as well, I'm sure. All right, thanks for that, Keith. Well, the fine for those caught attending or promoting a gathering in violation of the current public health orders has now more than doubled. But more than one year into the pandemic, some wonder if increasing the fines will really deter risky behavior. Ted Chernecki reports. As the more dangerous COVID UK variant is set to become the dominant virus in BC, as cases show a steady increase in recent weeks, and as partiers continue to party, BC's public safety minister has had enough. It's time to stop this selfish behavior. And it appears the minister isn't alone. Surrey RCMP say people's willingness to report non-compliance is changing. Sometimes people were like, oh, the police want us to rat on our neighbours. And, you know, so there was a little bit of that. But I think as time went by, people really became frustrated. They don't want to see the pandemic go on any longer than it has to. Fines for individuals attending or even promoting an event that breaks public health orders doubles immediately from 230 to $575. I want to remind British Columbians that along with advertising and selling tickets, simply sharing an event on social media can be considered promoting it. Of the COVID-written violations in B.C. since August 21st to last Friday, there have been 229 $2,300 tickets handed out to organizers of private gatherings, or about half a million dollars in fines. 46 similar fines for violations at food and liquor vendors for another $105,000. And 1250 $230 fines for individual non-compliance. 1525 total, but probably just a fraction of the real number of violations.
BC's most famous alleged non-complier is Mohamed Movasaji, the owner of a three-story penthouse condo in the Telus building on Richard Street. One week after being fined $2,300, he allegedly repeated the event and was arrested. A highly visible case to be sure, but in reality, enforcement is an issue. There are some people, as we've been seeing uh, through other you know, media stories, that aren't taking it seriously and continue to disobey these rules. The minister said he has other unspecified plans to enforce compliance if needed. Ted Chernacki, Global News. BC is relaxing more rules on religious gatherings. In addition to outdoor services, the province is also allowing some indoor services. Welcome news to faith communities preparing to mark upcoming religious holidays. But as Paul Johnson reports, some say the orders still don't hit the right note. March 28th, sermon take one. Preaching the gospel in 2021. Welcome into this online space for a time of learning and exploration together. At the Jericho Ridge Mennonite Brethren Church in Surrey, Pastor Brad Sumner and his team have basically had to figure out how to become broadcasters, adding staff and buying gear to create this digital pulpit. We're in a series right now at Jericho entitled disillusion. My whole rhythm has changed, so now I preach to a camera every weekend. Theoretically, Jericho Ridge could be taking advantage of the variants the province has allowed for religious groups that they can gather outside in limited numbers. But so far, they've passed on that because so much of their experience is based on this. For many Protestant denominations, singing in unison is a central part of the spiritual experience. So much so for the Mennonite brethren that even with the green light to gather outdoors, the ban on singing, which still stands, makes it not worth it. We were waiting and hoping that we could do 50 people outdoors with singing. That would have been a big win uh, for us. We've come up with a, a variance uh, to the, the gathering and events order. But for many other religious groups, this new announcement from Bonnie Henry Thursday will be a big win. That indoor religious gatherings of limited size will be allowed from March 28th through May 13th coinciding with the important rituals of Easter, Passover, and Vaisakhi. At least we can uh, uh, get together in a 50-person in, in indoor services. Welcome into this online space together. Back at Jericho Ridge, Pastor Sumner says they actually intend to take a pass on this latest variance as well. They've gotten into the rhythm of connecting digitally. Sumner's broadcast chops have gotten so good, he doesn't blanch at the suggestion he's now kind of a televangelist. It used to be a horribly dirty word, but now every religious leader is really a television personality in some ways. In Surrey, Paul Johnson, Global News. And more pandemic coverage coming up later. But right now, starting in July, you'll have to pay more to take transit in the Lower Mainland. TransLink fares are rising an average of 2.3% on Canada Day. That translates to an extra five cents for a one-zone fare and 15 cents for a more than three-zone adult cash fare. An adult monthly pass will cost you more than $100 for one zone and $181 for three zones. TransLink had planned a larger increase in 2020 to pay for transit expansion, but that was canceled because of the pandemic. A shattered family and friends left stunned by the murder of a much-loved member of their community. Remembering Micelle Loretto 
and the mark she left in the lives of so many. That's next on the News Hour. They stared at the challenge for a decade before a group of extreme skiers brought their downhill fantasy to life. A first descent they'll never forget later. And Kamloops fired to the rescue for a call they've never had before. A dog trapped in a reclining couch. That's coming up on the News Hour. Right now, though, friends of a woman found murdered in a Burnaby Park last week are in shock and disbelief. They say they're heartbroken over the horrific circumstances of Ma Cecilia Loretto's death as they struggle to cope with their sudden loss. Nadia Stewart reports. Grief and sadness amongst the friends of Ma Cecilia Loretto as they struggle to understand how and why she died. Mourning together as a community and a family torn apart by the loss. There's so many sympathy and prayers online and uh, people are very shocked how this happened. This is how Loretto is being remembered, a vibrant soul who loved to dance and sing. I was singing. I was doing harmony. Salve Dayo used to sing with Loretto at her new Westminster cafe. So it is horrible, disheartening, heartbreaking. Heartbreaking to... I can't get over it. Last night I wasn't able to sleep. Loretto was last seen alive on March 17th. Her burned body discovered in the early morning hours of the 18th next to a playground in a Burnaby Park. Two people, 21-year-old Carlo Tobias and a 15-year-old who cannot be named under the Youth Criminal Justice Act now face first-degree murder charges. And we have a very good idea of what happened. We have a narrative. We have a very good theory. Um, but that... All that information right now isn't for public consumption. What can you say? Why, peop why people do what they do? Why does it have to be like this? I will never understand why it happened to her. Dio says Loretto loved her family and community, describing her as a free spirit who was always smiling. She and others are struggling to come to terms with the loss. Who? What? Why? so many questions, you know, that is the sad part about it. Nadia Stork, Global News. Victoria police say a child is in hospital with life-threatening injuries after an incident at a local hotel pool last night. Officers were called to the Hotel Z on Douglas Street at about 6 p.m., for a report of an injured child, first responders immediately provided medical aid, including CPR, before rushing the child to hospital. Police are still investigating the circumstances of the incident, but they do not believe it's a criminal act. Prince George RCMP are asking for your help to find missing youth. Take a look. They say Luke was last seen Wednesday evening at around 5.30. He's a 13-year-old Caucasian boy, about four feet tall, with a slim build, light brown curly hair and hazel eyes. He was last seen wearing a green and yellow coat with duct tape on it. Police are concerned he may have been picked up by a passing motorist. We don't know how far he could have gotten at this point. Um, we don't know if it was a motorist that picked him up, how far they took him, where they took him, if they're still traveling along the highway, if he was dropped off in another town. There's a lot of unknown factors, so it is critical that if anyone sees Luke, they contact their local police detachment immediately. 
Police say Luke may have been carrying a PJ Masks backpack with extra clothing. They believe he may be traveling south from Prince George. Up next, achieving community immunity. It's for all individuals uh, for 16 and over. How one BC First Nation is making sure everyone gets protection from COVID. And a suspected vandal who just couldn't resist the bubble wrap. Extra delays here in East Vancouver where a semi-cab has stalled out eastbound on Dundas just east of Victoria Drive. Traffic is bottlenecking from two lanes into one. Kermac Collision and Auto Glass provides no-cost windshield chip repairs with your insurance coverage. And Kermac donates 100% of their income from chip repairs through Kermac Cares for Kids. I'm Trish Jewison in Global One, high above a stalled semi in East Vancouver. Hope is on the horizon for a BC First Nation. The community has managed to keep its COVID-19 numbers low through hard work. And now hundreds of members are stepping up to keep elders safe by getting vaccinated. Kylie Stanton reports. With something so unprecedented, there's comfort in numbers. It felt really powerful. It felt like it was a step forward. We all want the same thing. And with every vaccine administered, the Tsleil-Waututh First Nation is one step closer to what members like to call community immunity. We vaccinate everyone because community immunity means everyone. We take care of everyone as a whole. Since the onset of the pandemic, there have been only 19 cases here. I tested positive on February 3rd. Councillor Jen Thomas was one of them. It's something that I don't wish on anybody. Still, the case count is considered a success story, given the massive outbreaks reported in other First Nation communities. But that doesn't mean it's been easy. Because strength is family. You can't help but to feel depressed at times and... and um, because we need that connection with one another. The Slaywell-Tooth people consider family ties and interconnectedness their strongest pillars. But thanks to COVID-19, they've also become their greatest threat. The first clinic held March 10th for the nation's elders was the first time many members had seen one another in more than a year. Returning to their way of life is now palpable and largely what continues to drive the turnout. Knowing a little pain means a whole lot of gain. You know, it'll keep our community safe. It makes me feel emotional. The opportunity to operate the clinics on reserve also a factor, providing a sense of security for members following a report earlier this year that revealed Indigenous-specific racism and discrimination in BC's healthcare system. So there's that sense of safety for our people to not be discriminated against when they're receiving uh, the vaccine. Once these 250 doses are in people's arms, a total of 628 of its members will have been vaccinated. While that doesn't mean restrictions will ease just yet, there's also comfort in knowing it's just a matter of time. Almost brings tears to my eyes, thinking about it. It's been a long time. Kylie Stanton, Global News. Vancouver police are asking for your help to identify the person suspected of mischief at the Vancouver Art Gallery. Police say the suspect damaged this piece. It's called Delta Trim by Maureen Grubin, an artist from the Northwest Territories. It's made up of bubble wrap, reflective tape, Velcro, zip ties and moose hide. And it honors her mother's tradition of repurposing items you'd normally find in thrift stores and junk drawers. Police suspect this man of going into the gallery and popping the bubble wrap 
on February 3rd, causing around $6,000 in damage. The suspect is between 19 and 23, wearing a dark blue jean jacket over two dark hoodies. As with all creations that an artist does, uh, the artist puts in a lot of time and a lot of energy into creating their piece. Um, it's very upsetting to see the blatant disregard and disrespect towards the artist in this case. If you know who the suspect is, you are asked to call police. And Vancouver police say thefts of catalytic converters have surged across the city, more than doubling since the same time last year. Vancouver police investigated 71 catalytic converter thefts in Vancouver between January and March. Only 33 were reported in the first three months of last year. Residential areas in northeastern and southwestern parts of the city have been hit hardest. And while all cars can be targeted, thieves seem to gravitate to some models more than others. Investigators are seeing that Hondas account for most of the thefts. Uh, which is about makes up about 37% of the thefts, or sorry, targeted vehicles, uh, followed by 26% of those vehicles being Fords and about 7% being Toyotas. Catalytic converters are accessed from underneath the vehicle and are targeted because of the precious metals found inside them. Drivers are advised to park in well-lit and secure areas. Dual rallies this afternoon at the site of a contentious supportive housing project slated for Kitsilano. About three dozen people turned out at the corner of Arbutus and 8th to say yes to the planned facility. The province plans to construct the 12-story tower just north of the future Arbutus Skytrain station. It would provide space for 140 people who might have mental health or substance abuse issues. The site would be staffed 24-7 and residents could get meals, health care and other support services. About a dozen people who opposed the size of the project were also there today. They worry the scope of it could jeopardize the safety of students at St. Augustine School across the street. Up ahead, a very unusual rescue. I saw her and I realized her head was stuck. Kamloops firefighters free a dog trapped in a couch. How it all unfolded later. And U.S. President Joe Biden on the spot. How he responded to some tough questions at his first press conference since coming to power. Final clearing stages of an earlier crash here eastbound on Lowheen Highway just before the Pitt River Bridge. You're going to see just a delay now on the Mary Hill Bypass for eastbound traffic. You're also going to see a delay for eastbound traffic on the Lowheen Highway. Sussex Insurance has auto plan offices inside Walmarts and Real Canadian Superstores throughout BC. For hours and locations, visit sussexinsurance.com, open every day. I'm Trish Jewison in Global One at the Pitt River Bridge. More than two months after taking command of the Oval Office, U.S. President Joe Biden held his first official news conference today. It comes amid a series of challenges facing his administration, both domestic and foreign, including a pair of mass shootings and the immigration crisis at the southern border. Global's Reggie Cicchini has the details. The U.S. president waiting 65 days to hold a formal press conference was the longest wait for White House reporters in more than a century, but finally allowed the press to put Joe Biden on the spot. Immigration has become a critical challenge for this administration. There's been a 28 percent increase in the number of unaccompanied children detained at the southern border this year, with some facilities 1,500 percent over capacity. The president pushed back on criticism that his policies are acting as an invitation. 
the overwhelming majority of people coming to the border and crossing are being sent back. We're sending back the vast majority of the families that are coming. In the wake of two mass shootings, when pressed on the issue of gun violence, the president offered no firm details on how to move forward with legislation. He did welcome Republicans to the table, but insisted that he'll use executive powers if need be. Meanwhile, with the pandemic taking the brunt of the administration's focus so far, it remained in a spotlight, with the president touting the country's rapid vaccine effort while also announcing a new goal. 200 million shots in 100 days. I know it's ambitious, twice our original goal, but no other country in the world has even come close. 14% of the United States population has been fully vaccinated, although cases are climbing in many states. On foreign matters, Biden announced the U.S. will likely miss a May deadline to remove troops from Afghanistan and is talking to NATO allies to ensure a safe withdrawal possibly by the end of the year. While on China, Biden agreed that the country is a top competitor to the U.S., but also called out the country's human rights failures. The president has also called on the country to release two Canadians and has promised to work with Ottawa. The hour-long event was far less combative than in previous years, Joe Biden even making a passing joke that he missed his predecessor while offering a tease that he might run again in 2024. Reggie Cicchini, Global News, Washington. Meantime, a vaccine dose-sharing deal with the U.S. has been finalized. The head of Canada's mass vaccination program, Major General Danny Fortin, says Canada will receive one and a half million shots of the AstraZeneca vaccine next week from our southern neighbors. As part of the agreement, Canada is expected to have to return the favor someday. However, U.S. President Joe Biden is expecting to have enough supply for all eligible American adults by the end of May. Canada is aiming to wrap up the mass immunization effort by mid-September. In Health Matters tonight, we have a better sense of just how much the treatment of COVID-19 patients in Canadian hospitals is costing our health care system. The numbers were crunched by the Canadian Institute of Health Information. The average cost of a hospital stay for a patient with COVID is estimated to be $23,000. That's four times higher than a regular hospital stay. The average patient with the virus remains in treatment for two weeks. If that patient does not require admission to intensive care, the cost is roughly $15,000. But if they end up in an ICU and on a ventilator, the dollar figure soars to $50,000. The higher price tags are attributed to longer stays in hospital and the more intense resources required to treat COVID patients. Coming up, extreme dreams in the Rocky Mountains. Eef! A group of adrenaline junkies going where no skier has gone before. And when Little Bean got stuck on the couch, her Kamloops owners knew just who to call. Believe BC, featured on Global News Hour at 6, celebrates the innovative minds working together to reignite business throughout our province. Believe BC, brought to you in part by the BCTF, our kids and their teachers, worth investing in. You're watching Global News Hour at 6. Cherry blossoms are blooming, sun is shining, baseball gloves are snapping. I, my allergies haven't started, though. Oh, well, that's I'm good. I'm so confused. Mine are the worst. 
I do, really? I'm, yeah. I'm lucky so far, Cash, but a beautiful day outside, and, and you'd think I'd be sneezing, but no. No. Pardon me if I do. It's been bad lately. Oh, no, but it's been a beauty of a day. Thanks, guys, for that. We've had beautiful bluebird skies bringing out the songbirds. ladies and their ukuleles. Yeah, is this really the Northern Hemisphere? Very tropical North Vancouver, Kings Mill Walk Park earlier today under sunny skies and a very socially distanced crowd if they did have one. Our cameramen were there. Oh, how nice was that? Okay, so we did have daytime highs ranging between 10 and 13 across the lower mainland. And the warmest spot in the province today was Pemberton at 16.6. The plan, as it unfolds through the overnight, down to a low of 4, increasing cloudiness for the morning, a little bit more cloud cover, but then we're going to be clearing into the afternoon. High pressure continues to dominate. 10 will be our daytime high. So the plan for the north, though, is a little different. Your rain showers, they're making a comeback as early as this evening. It's really going to pick up though tomorrow evening for you but you will notice by tomorrow afternoon the act- action or the active weather it migrates further east we do have a chance of rain also for the central interior as well as for the columbia mountains for the most part it's mainly cloudy skies or partly cloudy skies across the southern interior this is your saturday morning by the way and then this weather system becomes a part of our weather story on our saturday into sunday sunday especially for the southern half of the province but here's what we have in store for tomorrow Rain along coastal sections, terrace, it's snow changing over to rain, and then the rain showers move into the central interior into the afternoon. But anywhere south of Prince George, we may not even see precipitation like in Williams Lake, mainly cloudy skies, but Valmount certainly getting a little snow and shower activity. Uh, For us along the south coast, it's going to be a beauty of a day, a sun cloud mix, and temperatures are going to be ranging between 11, 12, 13 degrees. It's going to be windy near the water as well. On our Saturday, this is a chance of drizzle or rain. But Sunday, it looks like this could be a very heavy downpour situation with very gusty conditions. So Saturday is going to be the better of the two, but clearing out quite nicely on our Monday. All right, your Centro Windows Weather Window brought to us by John Lavoie. The cherry blossoms, which you had mentioned off the top. There we go. And that is the Vancouver City Hall flag in the middle. Very nice framing. Mm -hmm. Very patriotic after Mm -hmm. that shot. Thank you, Kasia. Well, we've heard about firefighters rescuing pets from some tight and unusual spots, but here's a new one from Kamloops Fire Rescue. That's right. Last night, fire crews were called to a home after Little Bean got her head stuck in the reclining mechanism of the family couch. The family says they couldn't move the couch without hurting her. Fortunately, firefighters managed to get the right tools to free the little pooch, seven months old. And this morning, her owners posted a photo of Bean, who appears to be doing very well. She came out of the couch and she was kind of like immediately happy, like wagging her tail. Um, I think she was probably confused with all the people there, but she was excited. She likes people. I really just appreciate the firefighters and how nice they were and how fast they were. Uh, Little Bean also managed to pocket a whole lot of change. That <laughs> That's she right. Found in the couch. Oh, sure. And, and ate some popcorn <laughs> and some. Exactly. <laughs> giving away what's under my Any couch. Kind of, yeah, that is true. Every time I eat popcorn, how does it get in between the couches <laughs> and the little cushions? I don't understand. I know every piece when I eat goes right in my mouth, <laughs> but there might be other people around me where that does not happen. I don't have that excuse. <laughs> uh, the uh, Canucks head into a week long break having, um, well, 
lost two straight this week against Winnipeg, where the biggest problem for the Canucks was a lack of offense. Obviously got to find a way to score a goal. Uh, Pretty much. They certainly had lots of chances last night. They even outshot Winnipeg. There's a rarity, but they had no finish. And after a decade of dreaming, extreme skiers go to great heights to make it come true. Canucks getting a little spring break. Yes. It, just well, like the kids. It, well, yes, just like the kids. But um, they had a tough start to the season because they played a lot of games. They played more than anybody else. And now they get a chance to catch their breath. Anyway, the uh, Canucks don't have to play until next Wednesday. After getting caught in the jet stream twice this week, outscored 9-1 in two games by Winnipeg, not even Thatcher Demko could save them because the Canucks offense disappeared like the McDLT did. Remember that sandwich? Uh, The Canucks need a break in more ways than one, and they're on a break right now, and this one, of course, gives them a chance to have a physical and mental rest. It also gives the coaches time to think of some alternative strategies for the stretch run. The Jets with another lopsided four-goal win and send the Canucks into their week-long break on a two-game losing streak. If any team could use a break, it's the Canucks. Their 37 games played are the most of any team in the league, and that busy schedule has them physically drained and mentally fried as they muster up the energy to make a playoff push over the final six weeks. They definitely need to get Elias Pettersson back in the lineup. Amazingly, they've gone 7-3-1 and without him, squeezing out every possible point. But the offense has dried up, and they have to have him back to have a fighting chance. The Canucks have 19 games left, likely needing to win 13 or 14 to have any chance, and they'll also need the Canadians and Flames to struggle. Calgary's doing just that, having lost four of five. The Canadians are in a COVID pause and will have four games postponed this week, meaning they will now have to play their final 25 games in 40 days, and that won't be easy. So the Canucks have a chance, but they've got to do their part and win when they resume playing. Otherwise, they could be sellers by the April 12th trade deadline. We want to win this group that we have here. There's a great group of guys we have. You know, guys, I want to win here. And, and um, you know, I feel like we've, we've been playing really good hockey as of late. And, you know, if, um, you know, it, it's out of our hands on, on what happens, we just got to try to win hockey games. All right, Tim Stutzla and Ottawa actually playing a bit better of late against Toronto. Jack Campbell makes the big error. Watch this. Lease on a power play. What are you doing? What are you doing? Connor Brown scores. I know, that is... That's embarrassing. Good thing he has a mask on. So, one nothing for Ottawa. It was 1-1. Then, well, an Ottawa giveaway here, and it ends up being a goal for Jason Spezza. 2-1, and Toronto has won it in OT 3-2. Canada beginning the long road to the Qatar 2022 World Cup, and they've got Alfonso Davies with them. This game is in Orlando, and they are taking on Bermuda, a team they should beat. Kyle Laren, 19 minutes in from Alfonso Davies. That makes it one nothing. Eight minutes later, same combination, Davies and Laren. Kyle Laren, oh, with the move, and now the goal. 2 nothing for Canada. One more look. Switches to his right foot. 
Lucas Cavallini's in this game for Canada. And he's got a chance. Does he ever? Another pass from Davies. Oh, off the bar. Oh, that is upsetting. But Davies will set up another Laren goal. Well, actually, I won't show you that one just yet. I want to show you this goal by Richie Larea. That makes it 3 nothing. Now the combination of Davies and Kyle Laren again with the score now 3-1. to one. Yep. Having Davies there makes a huge difference. 5-1 now for Canada in the second half. Well, it was NBA trading deadline day, and the Raptors sent Norman Powell to Portland for guards Gary Trent Jr., who has some decent upside. Not a bad pickup. His dad, Gary Sr., briefly played for the Raptors at one time. They also got Rodney Hood. You'll likely only see him for the rest of this season. But they did not trade veteran Kyle Lowry, despite lots of interest in him. Uh, he turned 35 today. He's a free agent after this season, but he's quite happy to be finishing this year in Toronto, or at least in Tampa, playing for the Raptors. The story is not complete, put it that way, right? Uh, my career is not complete. My time in Toronto isn't essentially over. It's not, you know, the decisions, no decisions have been made. Nothing has been done. I, I don't know what I want. I just know that, you know, I've given a lot and uh, I'll continue to give my all no matter what. All right, Austin, Texas, match play, play, Canadian Mackenzie Hughes. On his opening match yesterday against Paul Casey, today he beat Webb Simpson. So he only needs to uh, tie in his final match tomorrow to make the next 16. Sergio Garcia has won his first two matches. Here's one of the reasons. Drives the green on a par four, 295 yards away. Now that is impressive. But then again, he is Sergio Garcia. Mm -hmm. And there you go. Makes it look so easy. Thank you, Squire. All right, here's Jordan Armstrong now with a preview of Global News at 11. Jordan? Chris, we are following a police incident that is unfolding on Vancouver Island tonight. Heavily armed officers have surrounded a home on Graham Road in Courtney. Police helicopters have also been called in. Plus, the rights to use the image of B.C.'s mythical Okanagan Lake monster have been turned over to the local First Nation. The city of Vernon has decided to transfer the copyright for Ogopogo to the Okanagan Indian Band. These stories and more tonight at 11. Chris, Sophie? All right, Jordan, thanks. Up next, a group of skiers going where no one has skied before. Stay with us. Perfect story now to follow the snow report. Winter is normally a busy time for ski guides in the Rockies, but this year, fewer tourists means guides have more time to tackle lines they have never skied before. Including one mountain slope virtually every skier who has passed through Banff has thought about. Global's Jamie Dahl has more on the historic first descent. Stare at it every day for as long as I've lived in the valley and wondered about it, and this was the year. A decade-long dream in the making to ski the enormous east face of Banff's Cascade Mountain. 
Last month, three local guides made it happen, the first to do so. So this was really going into the unknown, and you know, even though you can see the face, you, you still don't know exactly what you're going to get. How, what are your anchors going to be like? What do you, how are you going to get through this one cliff section? Will there be snow? Will it work? So that's really the, the question. It took Andrew Wexler, Justin Bruins, and Kevin Roan four hours to first climb up the south face with their skis on their backs. The experienced ski mountaineers always aware of the risks. A small avalanche in the wrong place, uh, pushing you over a cliff. That was the main hazard. There are nerves. While you're on the face, you, you, you're, you're wondering, am I making the right decision? Is this, is this a good time to be here? But it did feel like a good day to be up there. Eight hours from very steep and technical skiing and about nine rappels later, they made it successfully to the bottom. It's so iconic. I think for all of us up there that day, for Justin, Kevin and myself, um, you know, we've been looking at it all season, some of us for many years. And um, it was pretty cool to actually be realizing, you know, for the day to come and to be up there. It was, uh, yeah, a bit of a pinch, kind of a pinch me moment. We were really excited. Yeah, for sure. Tired, but... Uh, Pretty, pretty fired up. It's connecting a lot of technical challenges and uh, kudos to those guys. It was uh, very impressive. Doug Ward has blazed a long list of impressive first descents in the Canadian Rockies himself. The pioneer of extreme steep skiing says while the sport has grown, it takes a lot of years to get to that level. I think that there's a, obviously a lot more um, awareness, a lot more enthusiasm now to, for folks getting out there. Um, I'm not always convinced that the, 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 the caliber's up to the challenge right now. Uh, a lot of folks are confusing um, ski touring and, and mountaineering, and they're definitely different things. Um, consequences are high. Ward and Andrew Wexler both always waiting for the perfect conditions to go where no one has gone before. I always thought that the ski season in the Rockies doesn't start till around April 1st. Things are looking pretty good. <laughs> Jamie Dahl, Global News, Banff. No chairlifts there. No, no, on a long way down. Yeah, no steep T, yes, steep skiing, I don't think so. <laughs> no way. Apre. After COVID is over. After COVID's over. Mm. Uh, all right, let's check in with Kasia for one last look. Uh, no major snow in the forecast no. now that we're into spring. Not for us. Very spring-like forecast for you. It's going to be a nice one tomorrow with a sun-clad mix. It's going to be 11, 12 degrees in the valley. Saturday, it's just a chance of drizzle, but Sunday is when the real action comes. This could be a real weather maker with very strong gusty winds and a lot of rain. Ooh, looks nasty just in the graphic. <laughs> Right, yeah, thanks, so Saturday's your better day. That's all the time we have tonight. Thanks for joining us tonight. Have a good night, everyone.